This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. And you're on 3RRR, the show is Radio Marinara. My name is Dr Beach. And I'm Dr Surf. How are you going, Surf? I'm good, Beach. How are you? I'm very well. Very warm morning. And blustery. And it's very quiet here in Brunswick East because everybody's down the beach. They are on this this long weekend. And it's a surprisingly... It's actually an unusual long weekend for two reasons. The weather's pretty good and the surf's pretty good. It's usually dull, grey, onshore rubbish on a long weekend, but not this year. But before we go any further, I would like to tank... To tank. tank. No, I, don't, I don't want to tank him. Tank I, him. I, I, I want to thank Tim Thorpe for his wonderful three hours mm. and the live music we had. Yeah. Very good. And I heard that... And he um, played Tim Buckley. I missed that. Damn. That was great. Thank you, Tim. Um, we've got a pretty fun show today. We're going to spend a bit of time down at Phillip Island. We're going to have Alona Cherubi, an honour student who's just finished a project on Master lap wings coming into the studio and she's going to tell us about fantastic experiments she's done trying to measure how <coughs> pardon me big night last night well no it wasn't actually Alona's <laughs> going to tell us about um uh lap wings and how she's measured how nervous they get when people approach the nests there's been a lot of they attack talk me. with hooded plovers but these are masked lap wings and people are also concerned about them about their behavior on the beach and well rather the behavior of people on the beach and how that might affect their nesting behavior and therefore the you know the productivity of those little baby lap wings yep we'll also be talking about other things on phillip island mm-hmm. such as um fights at the penguin parade <laughs> can we talk about that because i went to the penguin parade with my children many years ago uh, in January, and uh, there was a fight, or a near fight, and I have to commend the rangers because they stepped in just at the last minute because what happens is that people get there early and take their seats right at the front to see the penguins. And in January, you've got to wait a long time for it to get dark. And then a busload of tourists came in and they just marched straight down to the front and stood in front of everybody. So punch on? Were you, in, were you involved in it? I was. <gasps> 
Uh, there was no blows, but there was a gentleman in front of me who'd been sitting there with his young children for at least two hours, and he kept saying, excuse me, excuse me, and they um, ignored him. And I tapped him on the shoulder, and, and I am a little bit ashamed to say, I said, if you're in, I'm in. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> but then the Rangers arrived. And, and so I thought the Rangers were, were very, very diplomatic. They did. They moved them up the back. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering. We will talk about whether that was common because I have had other people mention that that happened or whether it's, it was a, an aberration. Well, indeed, Alona is a, um, a ranger at the Penguin Parade as well, so she can tell us all about that and give us the, yeah. the inside information. About your self-defence courses. <laughs> <laughs> and we're also going to be talking um, a little bit with our... Uh, Philip Island correspondent. Uh, Philip Island. So we've got a Venice correspondent on this show. We've got a Philip Island we've got, correspondent. We've got, we've got a Mornington we've got Peninsula all, uh, correspondent, Phil Newman, who's going to come in, and we're going to be talking with Jeff from the Philip Island board writers about uh, how the the competitions are going, but also about uh, a uh, about marram grass in the sand dunes because I found this really interesting. They're starting to pull it out. Well, they're doing trials to see what happens when you pull it out. And I can remember when I was a kid in the 60s going. Um, doing uh, work days, putting it in because this is marram grass, I believe, is from South Africa, and we put it in because we thought it would bind the sand dunes together and, and stop erosion. But apparently, it's doing a job a little bit too well. Right. And there's there's moves now to pull it out. But so that we'll be talking with Jeff about uh, the first moves in that. We'll also be talking to uh, Phil Newman, as I mentioned, our Mornington Peninsula. Identity mm-hmm. correspondent about things that are happening down on the peninsula at Point Leo, and also things that are happening in the Peninsula Surf Rider Club. So we're cool. Bit of oh. a bit of a club roundup, and we'll be doing the Surf Coast later on in the year for those of you down that way with our correspondent Andrew. Excellent. How's the weather looking? The weather is looking blustery and warm, and it, there was actually a little bit of rain when I was driving up here, according to the age. It is. This is an interesting thing. I can't even see it. Partly cloudy, high chance of showers, 80%, which has already happened. Possible hail at night. Winds north-northeast, turning northwest 35 to 50 kilometres an hour, then shifting west to 60 kilometres an hour in the late afternoon with stronger squalls. So there's a bad change coming in. If you're camping, beware. Okay. Uh, Monday, it's interesting what's happening next week. After a little bout of warmth, it's going back to winter again, at least later in the week. Winds are going to be predominantly from the west-northwest and the temperatures, it's going to be reasonable tomorrow, 17. Then 18 Tuesday, 19 Wednesday. And uh, the long-term forecast for next weekend is 14, 15 again, which from my perspective is great. Cold weather, big surf. Tides? What's happening? When's high tide? That's a good question. I would imagine it would be about one o'clock. See what happens when you get old, Dr. Beach. You've got to take your glasses off to read. <laughs> I wouldn't know about that. No. Uh, high tide at Point Lonsdale is 12.30, so it's a little bit out. Low tide at 6.06 and 6.30 p.m. So we've got a high tide in the middle of the day. And um, do you want me to do the surf report now? I do, do a surf report. It's very windy. You'd have to find a sheltered area. Um, the winds are north with a touch of northwest in it. The swell's not that big. You could get waves about waist high down on the, sun, the surf coast in, on a sheltered beach, so maybe 
head to Janjuk, Ocean Grove maybe. Uh, east of Melbourne on the peninsula, you would have to find a fairly sheltered um, place because the winds were 25 to 30 knots down there. Uh, the swell's about head high, so if you're going to the beaches, only experience surface because it looks a bit rough. That's today. What about tomorrow? It's a long weekend. Uh, I'm not saying anything about tomorrow. Oh, it's going to be good then. <laughs> <laughs> mm. <laughs> Both sides? <laughs> I'm going to get this there, out of you. I, I, really, I really dislike the way that surfers try to keep it right. all themselves. Well, so you can't, share it. You can't, can't it. anymore because of the, of the internet. There's a big swell coming and the wind's going to be west-northwest. So um, the areas around Torquay will be firing. Talkers. Get to talkers. Mm. Go there. It's going to be good on Tuesday too. Nice one for the Melbourne Cup. Yes. Um, just a little bit of news I'd like to highlight that many of you would have seen yesterday in The Age and in other media outlets how we now have the largest marine park on Earth, which has now been erected in the Ross Sea off Antarctica to the south of New Zealand. There's been many, many efforts by lots of different countries to try and get this up in the past several years. This is now in place. It's fantastic. The agreement was settled uh, just... A couple of days ago, um, the Russians were a little bit kind of iffy about it, but they have finally come on board after many negotiations. So now we have this fantastic marine park, which is twice the size of New South Wales. Admittedly, this agreement is only in place for the next 35 years, and there are many groups who would have liked that to be put in place in perpetuity. But there you go. We've got it for 35 years. What does that mean, though? Can you fish in it? No. It's completely great. Yep, it's completely locked off. What about taking whales? Ah, uh, no, you cannot take whales. What about the Japanese? Do they, are they part of the agreement? Uh, the Japanese are not part of that agreement, I don't think. Um, I'm not sure Nerida, who was panelling for us today, is trying to... Come on, Nerida, get on the mic. I don't usually do that sort of thing here. Um, there was... I heard a news report yesterday about uh, Japanese scientific whaling has been formally scaled back through the, through the governing body... Whatever it is, okay. Scaled yeah, back was, to zero? No, sca- like scaled back. Like in, in, they, they, they be, okay. So they've apparently they have. There's been some sort of loophole which has let them catch as many as they want, but now they're actually restricted to a certain number. But within this new marine park, or oh, I I didn't know about the new marine park. Oh, right, so I, I think I think that that's separate. Yeah, it is separate, mm. yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah, Japanese whaling has been scaled back a little bit, but mm. not entirely, as we all heard about the um, the meeting last week, which was in, I forget where it was, it was somewhere exotic. Anyway. Paris? Paris, no. <laughs> Seems to be a lot of people going to Paris lately. Let's all go to Paris. Estamos escuchando Radio Marinara en tres triple R. Indeed, it is Radio Marinara on 3RRR and it's 17 minutes past 9 o'clock. My name's Dr Beach and I'm here in the studio with Dr Surf and also we have Alona Cherufi has joined us. Alona is a recently finished honours student um, who has done a project down at Phillip Island. Welcome, Alona. Thank you. (laughs) You've been working on um, one of the shorebirds that we have concern about sometimes about how much there is interaction or how much they get affected by people now that bird is the is the mast lapwing i'd like you just to take us through what you've been doing for the last well last several months well almost last year yeah um so mast lapwings are um considered problematic birds because uh, nobody likes them because they're very aggressive (laughs) 
<laughs> so mast um, lapwings, sometimes, I mean, we find them on the shore, but we also find them building nests in the middle of ovals and places like that, for example, don't we, or parks. Yeah, so they uh, nest around um, uh, coastal areas and uh, large uh, bodies of water, yep. and um, they've, uh, ground, they're ground-nesting native shorebirds, so they select their nesting areas usually in ovals and large lawns and um, rural areas like paddocks because they require uh, 360 degrees visibility to see approaching predators. So um, humans usually think that it's a very peculiar way to select your nest, but um, they're more concerned about food availability and, and visibility of predators. So... And so they can get pretty cranky when people yeah, want to they get play footy cranky. or even if they're down the beach <laughs> and they make that, that, that raucous... Well, I was going to say raucous noise, but it's not to the not to the lapwings, is it? Yeah, well, they it. get very cranky and I think the fact that they have spurs in their wings make them a little bit more um, threatening to people, although those spurs are not, not poisonous, as some legends say. Um, so that's their other name, isn't it? A spurwing plover. Yeah, that's their other name, spurwing plover. That's the old name. Now they're called mask lapwings because of their yellow, nice yellow mask that they have on their face. They're very cute. <laughs> <laughs> so your project, as far as I understand it, was to determine how their physiology, how, how upset they get when people approach the nest. How did you How did you do that? How did you approach this? Did you put tags on them, agree them like that, or, or scare them? Or Yeah, so my, my job was to scare them. Um, <laughs> so, um, But in a very gentle way. In a very gentle way, and, of course, animal ethics, and I received all the right permits to do that. Um, but... Uh, the way, well, a little bit of background about my project is 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 that um, there's a general decline in shorebirds around Australia and worldwide, and the reason for this project is to see why. Uh, one of the reasons for the decline is human disturbance. So, uh, with the, um, the um, expansion of population and um, um, more recreation around coastal areas and development of suburbs in around in and around coastal areas that affects not just habitat loss for for um, shorebirds but also it affects their physiology and their behavior so some of them will adapt like mast lapwings and they will be able to uh, live in close proximity to humans, but some of them will decline. So we use mass lapwings as a model to see how the stress of uh, living around humans is affecting them. Cool. And so these data that you get, these results, they could be extrapolated, they could be maybe used towards other... For other animals, other birds, like hooded plovers, I'm thinking of. Yes, yes. Um, the the way that we did that, and um, and and this method that we used can be extrapolated to other species. And I'm I'm really keen to <laughs> to look at that in the future. So. So the method. How'd you do it? Okay. So uh, one of the things is that so far the way um, stre- uh, the way stress has been looked at by um, by behavioral ecologists is usually to uh, measure 
um, what we call flight initiation distance, which is basically the distance between um, an investigator or a predator, a potential predator, and the animal, and the that that distance where the animal initiates a flight response is called the flight initiation distance. In simple words, it's basically when when the bird flies, when it sees you. So a lot of people, you know, when you walk around the park and you see a magpie or you see a bird, you can approach it to a certain distance and then get freaks out and just flies away. So that's the distance between you and that bird is the flight initiation distance. So... um, most studies have been looking at that as a measure of tolerance of birds and within individuals within a species, it's considered a good measure of habituation. So different individuals respond differently to humans. So um, some individuals are a little bit more stressed and it w- they will fly when they see you at a large distance and some individuals are a little bit more relaxed and it's very similar to to how human behavior is and they will let you approach them um, a lot closer. Um, But what me and my supervisor, associate professor Mike Weston from Deakin University, what we were looking at is integrating that behavioral measurement with looking at physiology because we wanted to know if those birds that allow you to approach them are they experiencing any physiological costs do they are they are they truly stressed yeah are they truly stressed or are they truly relaxed so if they're very relaxed and let you approach then they shouldn't have any physiological response uh, or initiate the physiological response as they fly away or very close to that so measuring that physiological response, some people could, I mean, I guess I can imagine some people might want to take blood samples, but that would be very difficult. Um, so how are you doing it? So what was important to me was that, as you said, physiological response is usually measured by uh, stress hormones, measuring stress hormones in, in, in blood samples. So for to, to do that, you need to trap the animal, grab blood sample and you're already stressing the animal yeah and not what, nice <laughs> no not very nice and what was important for me and and my uh supervisor was to do that um in a non-invasive way so we used a what we call egg with ears <laughs> so um we um his previous student Haley glover uh, she constructed an egg with a microphone hidden in the egg, a very sensitive microphone. And when a bird incubates eggs during breeding season, there's something that is called a brood patch. And it's a um, patch under the feather that the skin is exposed and it's highly vascularized. So. Mm-hmm. Um, a sensitive microphone will pick up the audio of the heartbeats. Um, so what we did is take this egg and put that in incubating masked lapwings' nests and let them incubate that egg and record it on a digital recorder. I believe we have a, um, a little recording of that now. So before we discuss this further, let's just listen to the sound that we're getting from this this fake egg with a microphone in it which is sitting underneath 
a masked lapwing on the beach. Yes, yeah, so just, just before we play it, uh, this is a nest and that snippet of audio is when I run my experiment. So you can hear the resting heart rate when the bird is very relaxed and then when it detects me approaching and how the heart rate starts elevating. That is so cool. Oh, I know. That's fantastic. <laughs> I, I could even hear in the background another bird tweeting or something. Yeah, yeah, is, yeah. Is that a, a bird which is... Or might that be a chick which is in another egg in that nest? Uh, no, that that one is a magpie. Oh, uh, right, I a magpie. Have, yeah, I did have a recording with a chick in another egg, but I, um, I couldn't find it for today, so I'm sorry. <laughs> That's so beautiful. So you're getting a measurement of the physiological response to you approaching that nest, so how nervous the bird is getting through its increase in pulse without really aggrieving the bird. Yes. I love that. That's fantastic. <laughs> so um, how many sites... Nesting, nesting sites did you uh, do this on? So I did this on um, 62 uh, birds. Okay. Yeah. And was there any, um, I guess, control? In other words, did you just put the, the, the egg in the nest and run away? <laughs> uh, no, th- there's no way to control. Yeah. So, um, and, and there's no, um, there wasn't, much justification for that because all we wanted to see was the difference between resting heart rate for a single individual and what happens to its heart rate while I approach. So um, controlling was um, of basically of no use yeah. for that experiment. I guess my, my, my question is more about were there other uh, environmental factors that caused the heartbeat to rise other than you running in oh so, so other uh, birds, for, for each, example yeah for, for each experiment um it was done um once on each bird however i did uh, make sure that other environmental factors will not uh influence the results so for example for each nest i wore the same color of clothes with the same headband so there's not going to be a change to how I look mm-hmm. that might alert those birds. Also, uh, some of my experiments have failed because, you know, cars came through in the middle of my experiment or yep. um, someone ran with their dog and yep. scared the... Oh, that's um, science. Yeah, it is. I'm so. wondering if there's a correlation between the heart rate and when the birds took off. Is in, in other words, was there a certain level that you found the heart rate went to, let's say, 250 beats per minute, and then it took off, or, or was that quite variable? It was um, highly variable. So, um, and it was um, so different individuals have different uh, mean resting heart rate. Mm-hmm. So um, the differences between the mean resting heart rate and the peak heart rate weren't um weren't huge in in regards so um percentage wise it was uh, it, it was basically the same there weren't no differences in mm-hmm. uh, between the mean resting heart rate and the mean peak heart rate but but, um, but uh, I, I guess what you're finding was that the heart rate went up 
In other words, the birds were stressed before they showed any other signs of stress, such as attacking or... Yes, yes. So um, it was all related to me approaching because the other things that we did in in order to make sure that the behaviour and... Um, well, we record the behavior accurately, mm-hmm. was to video that. So what I did was go through 62 nests with video and audio syncing, making sure that there's nothing else that might be influencing the response of, of mm-hmm. those birds. And whereabouts were the nests? Um, Roughly. I don't, don't want you to oh, tell no. people exactly where they are. Yeah, so so it's really interesting because some of them nest in people's backyards. Okay. Some of them nest in, in paddocks, in open paddocks. Some of them, I, I did have a couple of nests that were natural and it was really nice to see how they um, um, nest around uh, coastal, native coastal vegetation. Do they nest on the beach or is it always in vegetation? Um, they make a little scrape in the ground, so it will always be around grassy areas mm-hmm. or, or, or vegetation. They won't nest like hooded plovers yeah. nest on the sand, directly yeah. on the sand. Um, but that's why also the colour of their eggs is dark green with little uh, dark dots to um, camouflage in grasses. That's so cool. You're on Triple R listening to Radio Marinara and we're talking to, well, then I say we, Dr Beach and Dr Surfer talking to Alona Cherubi, a recent honours graduate um, who's been working down at Phillip Island on master lapwings. Alona, that's a fascinating story about the, the eggs and measuring the, the heart rate and therefore how nervous the birds get with people around them. How do you hope to use these data to help in perhaps protection of the birds and reserves down at well, Phillip Island and other places? So... Um the interesting thing that we found was, uh, and and that was the major um, the major finding of my research was that um, some birds suppress their physiological uh, their, their behaviour, but they respond physiologically for a long duration of time. So when they see me, they don't. Um, initiate a behavioural response, but they do have a hidden physiological response that if you look at those birds only from a behavioural perspective... That is if they're flying off or not? Um, no, that is when they show alert behaviour. Right. So um, the way the experiment worked is I started a, se- a certain distance and then start approaching the bird. And there are um, stages of response. So there's alertness when... There's a head bob of the bird, mm-hmm. and it looks, it detects me. Um, and one of the things that we found that was uh, some of them suppressed that alert behaviour and um, initiated a physiological response way before it was visible f- to me that um, they are aware of my presence. So that means that if you if land managers that so far created um, buffer zones and exclusion zones around nesting birds, um, if they use only behavioural measurements to um, to decide what those distances between visitors or recreationists to um, populations of birds yeah. are, then. Um, the physiology in some individuals starts before they show any um, any behavioural response. 
Sorry, I just wanted to ask a quick question. Yes, about that buddy, <laughs> Mike again. So, do you have any theories about what that might be? Like, uh, are they faking it into, like, faking you off, or are they feeling a vibration or in the ground? Or I'm, I can't, I can't so, imagine that you were like thumping your way along the ground or anything like that. But I'm just that's a really curious. good question. It could be that it's the need to thermoregulate the eggs. So it could be that they're suppressing their behaviour. We don't know. It's something that we really want to explore. But uh, it could be that they're suppressing their behaviour because they need to to sit on the eggs for longer. Or it could be for um, the other type of responses that we found that also um, suppress their behaviour but initiate a a prolonged physiological response. Um, It could be that um, they're... um, um, because the physiological response of escape requires stress hormones and requires heart rate elevation to uh, condition the muscles to move and initiate the actual flight response, it could be that they're suppressing that behavior to, to, to get a better um, chance of, you know, taking off. But um, that's something that needs to be explored and, and looked at. Just on that, are there any plans for future work leading on from this? Um, I hope so. <laughs> I do, actually. It just occurred to me, yeah, it would be really interesting from an evolutionary biology point of view to correlate the stress response that you can now quantify with with how many chicks are reared. Yes, that would be lovely to 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 um, uh, to see that. But uh, for example, with mass lapwings, it's a, it's it's a big problem um, um, because they live very close to humans, and um, they uh, the chicks suffer from cats yeah. and uh, that, foxes, that, and yeah. dogs and and well, on Phillip Island, there's no foxes, but. Um, of but in other coastal yeah. areas, there are foxes, but they're, uh, the chicks are really good snack size for cats. So mm. uh, responsible um, pet ownership is a very important thing for their survivability. Mm. Good point. Um, and, and also dogs on beaches. So uh, when, when people walk their dogs on the beach and um, no one believes that um, Rexy is aggressive... But they do have that. Um, they scare the bejesus out of them. Yeah, <laughs> whether, and, whether and Rexy is they, passive or not. They will go for the parents. So some of some dogs will go for for the parents or the chicks. Or Alona, this has been fascinating, and I thank you very, very much for coming in. I'd like you. We're going to go to a track now, but I'd like you to hang about in the studio if you don't mind, because we're going to be talking to somebody down at Phillip Island about another issue very soon. Um, well, after this music. Um, just before One thing. I, sorry um, right. I'd like to thank the Center of Integrative Ecology in Deakin University and my uh, supervisor um, associate professor Mike Weston and my co-supervisor Dr. Peter Dan from Phillip Island Nature Parks um, for helping me do this and supporting me throughout this project cool Hi, I'm David Suzuki, and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR 102.7 FM. And by the way, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. I'm Dr. Beach, and I have Dr. Surf in the studio with me. And I'm joined by two very special guests, Phil Newman, our uh, correspondent from the Mornington Peninsula, and on the line, Jeff Owens-Uzo. 
from Phillip Island Board Riders. How are you, Jeff? Good morning, Dr. Surf, Dr. Beach, Phil. Morning, Hughes. everyone. How are you, mate? Good. How are things down on the rock today? Is it a bit, a bit windy? A bit windy, yeah. Surf's a bit blown out. Swell looks like it's on the rise. So, you know, as long as the wind doesn't get up too much over the next few days, but there could be some surf up the other end with a bit of luck. Good, good. Okay. Who's just have a... Well, Jeff, should I call you Jeff? Um, oh, whatever you like. Yeah. <laughs> What'd you call him? Ooze. Ooze. Well, it's short for Ooze. I, I won't go and call him Ooze. No, we ain't going anywhere where that no, came from. An old nickname. Uh, Jeff, just to find out what's happening down on the, on the island, or the rock as we call it. Um, yeah. Obviously, can you give us a bit of a, a wrap-up on what the, the Border Rider Club's up to at the moment? Because um, you've been an integral part of that club for many years. Yeah, board riders um, in hiatus, obviously, all winter. Most people have gone, you know, somewhere warm to surf, Indo, Hawaii, Maldives. So it starts up again on the 19th and 20th of November. Um, yeah, we're looking forward to a, a, new, a good season, hopefully, with some waves. Uh, yeah, lower the entry fee this year, hopefully get a few new members to, to join up and uh, get us back up the up the tree as far as uh, one of the better ball clubs in the state. Um, how are you going with your junior rank, junior guys? Are you you're getting a lot of juniors? I was, I was a little bit isolated down there, so are you getting plenty? Or Yeah, no, we've got a lot of good juniors. You know, the schools have got good surf programs in them, um, all the local schools, so kids are surfing really well. Yeah, and the ball club's got its fair share of, you know, cadets. Yeah, they have a lot of top-end juniors, but, you know, they'll just come up, they come and go. Um, from year to year, so obviously the cadets will step up this year into the junior ranks, and uh, yeah, we'll be full again. Now, Jeff, just uh, one of the stars down there, Nikki Van Dyke. Um, as you know, she's on the on the WCT and um, doing exceptionally well. I think you, anyone that follows the the, the CTs and the That's girls, That's the World Tour, yeah, the yeah. World Women's World Tour, Tour, which has just been um, decided on an Australian one it this year. That's right, Tyler Wright, Tyler Wright. world champion. Yep. But Nikki's done very well. Nikki had a pretty good year. She finished 11th, but she finished the year off really well, came 5th in Maui in Hawaii, the last event of the year, which I think is her best ever CT, um, the highest uh, she's been in the CT in her career. And she also finished off the WQS in first place, so she's qualified easily for next year. So she'll be on the tour again next year without any problem. Hopefully she'll go on and maybe make a, a top five berth this year coming. Do you see much of her, Jeff? Oh, yeah, we see her around surfing quite a lot, yeah. Um, you'll see a bit of her. There's a new DVD, Rip Curl DVD out called Stuck in Reception, um, mm. featuring Nikki, Alana Blanchard and um, Tyler Wright. And I've seen a, you know early excerpt of it and the girl's absolutely shredding. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a really mm -hmm. good DVD. Um, speaking of shredding, you just returned from a, a trip to Indo? Yeah, we went on a boys' trip. We went to the men's we yeah. went with um, Tony Doris Elfrington, which was fantastic. Um, the master, as we <laughs> called him, the boss. Yeah. He's, uh, he was really good fun. We had lots of waves, and he managed to get us you know, alone a lot at some premier spots down south. So, oh, yeah, good. it was a fantastic trip. Now, just, Jeff, just, sorry, Jeff. Just yeah. remind me, Tony Tony Doris Elfington is famous because he was the guy that went and found the South African surfer that had been washed overboard. Is that right? That is absolutely correct. And he knows yeah. he's been up there for thirty years or more. He knows the currents you know, better just, than anyone. Yeah. And he yeah. tracked this poor fellow down who'd been in the water yeah. for 
48 hours. Or something. hours Can you remind me of that story? I, I don't remember that. Yeah. So, well, this guy fell off a boat in the middle of the night. You know, you, you come out from Padang um, to go out to the Mentawis. It's an overnight trip, usually nine or ten hours. So we're talking about Indonesia? Yeah. Yep. yep. And, yeah, sorry, North Sumatra. Um, out, it's about 125 nautical miles out to the Mentawi chain. And um, he came off the boat in the middle of the night, staggered out after a few too many, fell over the side in the middle of the night, which is a bit of a no-no. Didn't hang onto the rail well enough. <laughs> bit of a no-no, all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, you know, they continued on out. Didn't realise until you know, well and truly into the night, that he was missing. And um, yeah, in the morning they mounted a search, and, and Doris was um, nearby, so he was called on, or you know, he, he was out there at the time. So he he joined the search, and he just never gave up. He said, we're not leaving anyone behind. So he had a look at the currents and the winds and the swell direction and all that kind of stuff and took it into account and, and then managed to find him. Wow. Amazing, really. That sure so is. I was very lucky to be alive. And, um, yeah, there is a book out. He wrote a book. We read the book while we were on the boat. Um, and Doris showed us the 60 Minutes clip. <laughs> Jeff, just... Um, uh, Woolamai now is a is an official surfing, uh, recognised surfing national surfing reserve, um, yeah. like Bells. Uh, when how, when did that come about? Um, 2011, we opened the reserve. I was actually on the committee, the founding committee, that um, started the process to get Phillip Island beaches recognised as a national surfing reserve. And um, yeah, it was a long process, but we all enjoyed it. We still we still meet as a group. Um, and still active in doing, you know, projects within the reserve. Now, speaking of projects, the um, we spoke about the marram grass earlier. Uh, yep. Can you give us enlighten us a little bit on that, or where that's going down there? Well, you know, as a group with the National Surf Reserve, since the reserve's been open, we've sort of been doing, you know, little side projects, and this is one of them. One of the um, members of the committee, Dr. Andre Sharadi, who is works for the Penguin Parade. He came up with the idea that um, we should maybe look at, you know, getting rid of some of the weeds on the primary dunes along the coast. And obviously the main weed that's been introduced over the years is the marron grass. And, you know, surfers, it's been a bugbear for many years along the coast saying that, you know, that holds the dune together is good in one way, but then when we get a gouge out from Big Swell, the, the, the sand is taken and doesn't replenish back onto the beach because the, the marron grass holds it in position. So we're looking at... We've done a bit of a test patch at Woolamai, taking the marron grass off the dune, being careful not to take anything else that's native or, you know, should be there, um, you know, native grasses and other coastal plants. And we're just going to see how the sand, you know, moves and flows and see what we can come up with from there and hopefully in the future maybe take some more of the marron grass off the primary dune and see if it can, you know, sort of go back to the way it was, I suppose. Jeff, Dr Surf was mentioning before about the marron grass when we were kind of introducing you at the beginning of the show and reminding us that that's a, it's actually not a native plant that was put in to, to keep yeah. the dunes together. So yeah. it's interesting, isn't it, that we're now... Looking at this in hindsight and thinking, well, perhaps that wasn't such a good idea because this is doing too too much of a good job and spreading. Yeah, well, that's right. It was a work for the Dole scheme under Malcolm Fraser in the 70s, you know, to, to reclaim supposed dunes that were, you know, denuded from vegetation, which had been like that for, you know, forever, as far as we can see. And um, 
yeah, to stabilise them, but it's it's had good and bad effect. So, you know, surfers believe that, you know, because the sand doesn't move back into the ocean or back onto the beach, you, you do get a lot of erosion. And, yeah, we've had some pretty big gouge-outs this year, particularly at Forest Caves. It's really bad at the moment. Um, over the winter, some big high tides and large swells took a lot of the dune away, and it's quite cliffy there at the moment. So hopefully it comes back, but the mountain grass is sort of been taken off that dune in previous swells so hopefully the dune just regenerates with the local grasses yeah and i've heard that there's similar studies going on up in new south wales with the marum grass too so yeah then... well i know north narrabeen they had a big problem i think in north narrabeen or narrabeen i can't remember which part but um the surf lifesavers were unable to see the beach because the vegetation had grown so much over the primary dune and trapped the sand that it grew, you know, to a height of six metres. And um, the, the fabled North Narrabeen left-hander had disappeared and um, the council decided that they'd take all the vegetation off the dune so the lifesavers was from the tower in the clubhouse were allowed to see the surf again. And lo and behold, once they took the vegetation off and dropped the dune height down, the bank came back out the front. No, good. Jeff, look, um, we we thank you for uh, for allowing us to talk to you this morning, and um, it's been really informative. We don't get too many updates from down the island, but uh, it's been been great today. And and all of us here, thank you for for your hard work. Yeah, thanks, no Jeff. All right, uh, hopefully, we'll catch up with you before Christmas. No worries. Anytime you're down, Doctor Surf, Phil, right. have a come around for breakfast. Oh, oh well, we will. thanks. Mate. <laughs> Eggs right, are thanks on you, mate. Beach. Thanks, mate. Thanks, Jeff. See ya. Bye bye. Now, Mr Newman. Okay. Well, just, just before we move on, that was yeah. Jeff Allen's calling in from Phillip Island. Island telling us about from, the marum grass. And, Phillip um, Island Board Riding Club. Yeah, and interesting talking about the marum grass. And, mm. and we'll certainly follow that up next year and, and keep an eye on that because it's an interesting development. Interesting the way things change. Yeah. Now, we'll move into the East Coast. We will. We're going to talk about... Uh, the Mornington Peninsula, what's happening down there. How, uh, we've got a little bit of news about what's happening in the PSC. Now, if anyone hears those initials, that means the, the Peninsula Surf Riders Club. Yeah. Okay. First up with the guys down there, and thanks for having me today, guys. Um, the Peninsula Surf Riders Club kicked off their uh, their season again this year. There's sort of a couple of uh, contests into their Triple Crown event. Uh, which they held the second contest down at uh, Portsea the other day. And first time ever. Their first time ever in the history of the club, we believe, that they've moved a contest to Portsea. And the Portsea Life Saving Club are kind enough to let them use their, uh, not the facilities, but the um, the area there above the, uh, above the Life Saving Club there. So they had a great day of waves. Um, some good banks out the front, and um, yeah, it's an indication really that the banks are better down that end of the peninsula yeah. than the Gunnamatta end at the moment. Yeah, and uh, these prevailing nor-nor-westerlies at the moment, it, you know, it suits it down there. Um, club champion race is on with Caden Fowler, Mikey Barber, and Callum Nicholson, well and truly into it uh, in the hunt. Um, on the third of December, the club's hosting the Battle of the Bay which pitches the PSC against 13 Beach Board Riders. That's an old run rod. You'd know that's been going for yes. years. And um, this will be held at Gunnamatta this year, so in those uh, pretty heavy reps and all of it. So it'll be, see, be interesting to see who comes out on top. Uh, just after that, following the comp, there'll be the Christmas party, and then on top of that, they'll be having their Preso night 
on the 25th of November up at the Portsea Hotel as well. Some good bands. I'll move quickly because um, we're running out of time. Uh, as we spoke about some of the uh, the people from the Border Riders Club at uh, Phillip Island, we have Georgia Fish. She's one of the girls that's uh, made it up to the WQS, currently ranked 22 uh, in, the, in the world. Uh, she came <coughs> fifth four times this year. So on this last year uh, of last few rounds of the tour, so Georgia's done ex- extremely well. Just picked up a new sponsorship from Point Nemo, which is a, un- a unique um, fashion clothing label that's actually designed in Australia but uh, manufactured in Italy. Hmm. Um, and they're individual items, so they're not a, a mass-produced uh, sweatpop type sort of clothes. So. And if you get on her website, have a look at their latest video, which which was shot in Indo. It's uh, some, it's got some excellent uh, footage in there. One of the other follow-ups from some of our expats, um, the Harrison kids. They've moved up onto the, into the heart of surfing down at uh, Rainbow Bay, doing extremely well. Um, Young Piper has been picked up by the um, the National um, High Performance Centre. She's getting sponsored now, and they're moving her on to uh, to some of the uh, better better results. And she's been her and her brother Marlon have also picked up and won the um, the Vic Grom search down at Rip Curl in Torquay recently, and a few other national titles. So they're doing exceptionally well. Yeah, it's an interesting point that for those of you who don't know, if you want to become a pro surfer, you've got to move to one of the top clubs. That's where you start. Mm. And one of the top clubs is in uh, Surface Paradise. Snapper. Snapper. Yeah. And that's where Mick Fanning came from and, and where several other, uh, uh, I guess, the Cooley kids, as they're called, world champions have come from. So yeah. it's interesting that the Harrisons have, have moved their entire family up there so yeah. their kids can get a good grounding in surfing and hopefully move into the professional ranks. Yeah, they're not too far away and uh, they mix their, their surfing their school pretty well, so... Uh, but, yeah, living the dream up there, as they say. Um, one other thing, Dr Surf, that will probably bring up being in Queensland is, is I probably saw it on the news the other day, there were a number of shark encounters and shark attacks. Uh, there was a recent one uh, up at um, uh, Broken Head where a guy, and I think you saw the pictures the other day. There was uh, quite extensive media coverage on it, and, and the guy, to his credit, it was, it was a nip. Yeah. Very scary, though. Yeah. He got himself out of the water, got in the car and drove himself to the, the hospital. hospital. Yeah, which is so amazing. So if you're listening, mate... But from my, uh, from my sources up there, um, I've since found out within an hour of that happening, uh, within a couple of hours at least, down at Lennox Head, there was a guy, a local guy, a guy that surfed there for many years, uh, was paddling out at Lennox and apparently um, thought he hit a bit of chop and got bounced off his board. And uh, it turned out it wasn't chop. It was a, a decent size, they believe, a white pointer. Yeah, he uh, got rammed. Uh, he got rammed and it uh, bumped him off and threw him off his board. It reminds me of Sharknado, which I watched last <laughs> night for the first time. <laughs> See, it's real. <laughs> it's real. <laughs> and, um, yeah, he ended up... They cleared the water, but the waves were that good they were back out within half an hour. Yeah, and very su- clever. Uh, and at the same time, down at South Ballina Wall, two sort of eight, nine-footers... Chase the guys out the water as well. So. You're in the dying minutes of Radio Marinara on three triple R, and we have Dr. Surf and Phil, our potential correspondent in yeah, the studio. Just to finish off, we're going to talk a little bit about beautiful Point Leo yeah. 
uh, the foreshore. Now, those of you who go down there may um, know that you have to pay $4 to get onto the beach at the moment. And that money goes to a very good cause. So what, what is that for? Um, Tony and the guys down there, and if you do go down, it's probably one of the, you know, the jewels in the crown of the peninsula. It's a beautiful site, unpowered in certain areas. Um, it's in full swing at the moment, the 1st of October, with the camping area full this weekend, as we saw yesterday, Dr Surf. It was really busy down there. Now, Tony and the boys are doing a great job. They've just uh, integrated a new sewer network down there with South East Water at a cost of 590000 um, On top of that, there's a new fire service going throughout the park, which is costing another hundred k. And I threw these things at you about a year ago, what they spent on toilet paper, 10 k a year on toilet paper. <laughs> and this money comes from the entrance fee. It doesn't come it, from a grant from the government. Exactly right. So 10 k on toilet paper, 70 k on rubbish removal and probably another 50 k just on general conservation. Mm. So if you do begrudge, people say to me, you know, oh, $4 to get in or whatever it may be, that's all self-funded. So the government doesn't give them anything. So they live on their, on their camping fees and obviously the gate fees. So they, if you do yeah. go down... They do a fantastic job. It's beautiful down there. Yeah, it, it is. And we were down there yesterday, of course. Yeah. If you've got nothing to do, come down to beautiful Point Leo. Yeah. Drop in the Trigger Brothers. Yeah, Say good day to Dave and Mabel. We're the, we're the Dave and Mabel. Yeah. And, and spend Brothers. your four bucks. <laughs> yeah. We're going we're to make room now for the doctors who are coming in very, very soon. I see them accumulating in the green room. Um, you've been listening to Radio Marinara. I would like to thank Alona Cheruvi, um, honour student from Deakin University, coming in and talking about her project on the Spurwing Plovers. Phil, thanks to you very much for thanks, giving Phil. us a wrap-up of what's been happening down thanks, on the peninsula. And Dr Surf, I enjoy your company as always. Next week we have, um, we have Anth and we have John in the studio and I just also want to thank Nerida very much for being on the panel and doing such a fantastic job. From her sick bed too. Well, I know she's crook. Thanks, Merida. Thanks, Merida. We'll see you next week. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, one hundred two point seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.